We continue in our study of the Gospel of John. In this past week, as we were looking at Jesus' first visit in his earthly ministry to the temple, seeing what he likely had seen many, many times before, the Father's house of prayer being used as a place of business. And with righteous anger and indignation, Jesus drove the animals out of the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. And he declared that God's house was to be set for him, his purposes, and his glory, and for nothing else. At the tail end of our passage last week, we were reminded that after the Passover, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem for some time. And during that time, he performed many miracles, and there were many who believed in him. And yet, because Jesus knows the hearts of man, he did not entrust himself to these believers as he did and would continue to do to his disciples. We don't really know how long Jesus stayed, and John is the only one that records for us this first cleansing that took place in the temple. But we now get introduced into a very prominent person within the Jewish life, and that is the man Nicodemus. He, like many others, was intrigued by what he saw Jesus do. He had an interest in this individual, not only as a Jew and as a Pharisee, but as also a man who clearly saw that God's hand was with Jesus and he wanted to learn something else about him. Now, our passage really goes all the way to verse 21, but we won't be able to get there today. We're going to stop at verse 10 and divide this long section into two different messages. And so we'll go through verse 10 today, and we'll look at this in three major sections, the person, the problem, and then the presentation. And here's what God's Word says to us in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So we look at our first section here as we look at the person. And the person from our narrative we see is Nicodemus. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him. So Nicodemus' interest in Jesus has been prompted initially by the miracles that he himself had seen and like many others had some 
desire for more information. If you go all the way back into the beginning of the Gospel, when John the Baptist introduces his disciples, Andrew and John the Apostle who is writing this, when those two are introduced into Jesus, to Jesus, he, they said to him, where are you going? And he said, come and see. And so in the same way, Nicodemus is wanting more information about this Jesus, just like his disciples did earlier in the Gospel. Now, Nicodemus' approach to Jesus shows that he was a cautious man. He was open-minded in the fact that he was willing to have this dialogue with him. That he was interested in receiving a new revelation from God. And he wanted to be sure of the genuineness of what Jesus was about to say. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We've heard a lot about the Pharisees. We know that they were the religious leaders of the day. The word technically means separated ones. In the sense of being zealous for the Mosaic law and what transpired over a number of generations, they become zealous for their own oral traditions which they added to the law and held to an equal standard to the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees originated during the intertestinal period when the prophets were silent for some 400 years and out of a revolt led by the Maccabeans, these group called the Pharisees were joined together and they were going to provide religious leadership for the people. Now what's interesting is that the zeal that the Pharisees had for the law caused them to become ritualized and focused on the external. And as we'll look as we go through this passage, there was very little interest, very little time or attention spent to the internal life of a Jew. It was all about the external appearance in their lives. So they created many oral traditions that were added to the Mosaic Law, which emphasized the importance of this outward appearance as opposed to internal obedience to God's commands. So many of these oral traditions were centered around the Sabbath. And as you've read through the Gospels, I'm sure you've seen them challenge Jesus on the things that He did and the things that He allowed to take place on the Sabbath. So they held the Sabbath day of tremendous importance as a day of rest and a day of worship. So here's an example of how they had emphasized the external and difference to the internal obedience of the word. Part of their oral tradition. They would carry no more food than the weight of a dried fig and no more milk than could be swallowed at one gulp unless they violated the Sabbath rest. That was their oral tradition. That was the standard that they held people to. They were serious about their faith, but it got them into some pretty ridiculous situations. For example, it was determined that on the Sabbath... You could not tie a knot. Okay? You couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. That was like work. But a woman could tie the sash around her robe. So if you went to the well and there was no knot tied to the bucket to drop into the well to pour out some water, you'd have to go back to the house and get your wife's sash and tie it around the bucket because you didn't want to violate the oral tradition. That was the kind of minuteness and the technicalities that they held to these oral traditions that they created and held to an equal standard as they did to the Mosaic Law. Because of the emphasis that they had on the external, because they did not have unchanged hearts, 
all they could really do is replace true religion, a love for God, and a desire to be obedient to God, they would replace that with behavior modification and ritual in response to this fake spirituality that they had. Not concerned about the inner man, not concerned about obedience to the law, emphasized and focused on the outward appearance of adhering to these man-made traditions, and if you did that well enough, you might pass their test. So it was this kind of religion that forced upon the people that brought about Jesus' most harsh words to the nation of Israel. Here's an example of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." You know, as you go through and read the Gospels and you hear the kinds of things that Jesus said to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the ones who really should have known better, you never hear that kind of conversation with a common man, with the person in need of love and mercy and grace. You see the very tender side of Jesus. So Jesus is dealing now with this Pharisee, this man named Nicodemus, who was also a ruler of the Jews. That means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council of all of Israel. Now, while it was under Roman oversight, they still wielded great power and great influence over Jewish people, most particularly in the region of Judea, But when others came for the feasts, as they were required to, they would also enact their rulership, their leadership over them as well. So the Sanhedrin consists of 71 members, presided over by the reigning high priest. It included men from the influential priestly families, from elders who were family and tribal heads, from scribes who were experts in the law, and any former high priest who were still alive. So the Sanhedrin was the who's who of the Pharisaic life. If you remember what Paul said about himself, that he was, of all men, able to boast in the flesh a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous in the law, a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the most famous Pharisees that was known at that time. And here is Nicodemus in the who's who club of religious leadership known as the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin exercised wide-ranging powers in civil, criminal, and religious matters. They had the authority to make arrests and to conduct trials, which is what they did with Jesus. But they could not execute 
That was the limit of what they could do. And that was why it was necessary for Jesus to stand before Pilate and eventually Herod to bring about his crucifixion. So here is Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a member of the ruling group of Pharisees known as the Sanhedrin. And he's coming to Jesus at night. He does this to avoid the appearance that his visit with Jesus has the approval of the Sanhedrin. And he also does this because he doesn't want to be seen as one who would potentially be sympathetic to this upstart who has arrived in Jerusalem and is making things very uncomfortable for the Pharisees. So we read in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So like many of the Jews, the miracles of Jesus created quite a stir, and Nicodemus was curious And he wanted some private time to find out more about the message and the man that they had just encountered. So he greets him as rabbi, which means teacher. And for a Pharisee who was a member of the Sanhedrin to call another individual rabbi, it meant that at some level and in some way, Nicodemus saw Jesus as a bit of an equal as he himself had personally witnessed the miracles that Jesus had performed. He says, we know. Not I know. We know. All of Jerusalem, those who have some kind of a superficial belief in you, and the Pharisees, including the Sanhedrin, we know that it is impossible to deny the miracles that you are performing unless God be with you. There's no way we could have seen what we have seen unless the hand of God was with you. Now, Nicodemus is a wealthy, educated, and influential man, and he is ready for a philosophic conversation with Jesus, helping to determine for himself the accuracy of the message that Jesus had, and to try to determine if he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that the nation of Israel had been waiting for and looking for for a very, very long time. So the conversation that he's about to have with Jesus is not at all what he expected. So we come now to the problem. The problem we see in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, after having these kind and courteous words spoken to him, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Instead of Jesus thanking Nicodemus for the kind words, instead of giving himself a self-congratulatory pat on the back, he cuts to the chase and he confronts Nicodemus at his deepest need and he basically says, Nicodemus, you are lost. You know nothing about God. You know nothing about what it means to be a child of God. Now, there's two very important terms that Jesus introduces to us here in this verse. The first one is the term born again, and born again means born from above. The idea is that an individual needs to be born from above, and Jesus will flesh this out in a little bit more detail as we go through the passage. But to be born from above speaks of regeneration where God imparts eternal life to those who are dead in their sins and thereby allows them to become the children of God. So here's the first challenge that Nicodemus is going to have to face, and that is, 
Do I have a need for cleansing? Do I have a need to be born from above? Because after all, I'm wealthy, I'm educated, I'm potentially from an aristocratic family, I am a Pharisee, I'm a member of the ruler, ruling council of Jerusalem, and here you're telling me that I need to be regenerated. You see, all of mankind needs regeneration because of the impact of the fall. All have inherited a sinful nature and stand as enemies of God, unable to approach Him because of His holiness. And all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That is the need of all mankind. But you know, in our culture, there are a lot of misunderstandings about who God is. I read this week an article from one of the highest executives within Apple who said, being gay is God's greatest gift to me. Now, do you think there's some misunderstanding about God woven into that statement and into that mindset to think that God's greatest gift that He could ever give to any individual was to be a homosexual. It's absolutely inconsistent with who God is and with what Scripture says, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about God. Not only is there a lot of misunderstanding about God, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about eternal life. There's an old spiritual that has the title, Everybody Talking About Heaven Ain't Going There. There are a lot of people who are talking about God, who are talking about heaven, who might drop it into their conversations and might even have crosses adorned on their body in ink or in jewelry. But I want to guarantee you, apart from regeneration, talking about heaven and talking about God is not going to get us the great gift of eternal life. We need to be reborn from above, cleansed from our sin and our guilt, and to have a righteous standing before God imparted to us. Every man needs that kind of an encounter with God. It didn't matter that this man was a ruling member of the Sanhedrin. He was lost. Now, Nicodemus wants to discuss religious philosophy and Jesus cuts him off at the pass and goes straight to the heart of the matter and says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, there's a lot of sloppy theology out there that seems to think that Nicodemus is hearing Jesus in an absolute literal way. That is not the case at all. Nicodemus knows what Jesus is talking about. Now, being born again, that born again is the first important term that Jesus introduces to us. The second important term is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has two realms. There is letter A, the universal realm. This is a reference to God's sovereign rule over all of His creation. And in the broadest sense of the term, everyone is a part of God's universal kingdom. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. In Psalm 103.19 we read, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So there is this universal sense of the kingdom of God, but there's a more specific sense. And this is a sense that Jesus is using here, and that is, let it be, the spiritual kingdom of God. Those who have been born again by divine power, through faith, 
now live their lives under the rulership of God, mediated through His Son, in the power of His Holy Spirit, initiated by grace through faith at the cross. Now, unfortunately, the Jews thought that being descendants of Abraham and observing the law and performing all of these external rituals would gain them entrance into that kingdom. Therefore, there was not a need for a generation. There was not a need for confession. There was not a need for repentance. And this is why Paul would say that not everyone who descends from Abraham is from Abraham. It isn't about your heredity. It isn't about your moralism. It isn't about the kind of life that you live publicly. It's about the work of God internally that comes from the Holy Spirit apart from any effort of mankind. The Jews are severely mistaken as Jesus is making abundantly clear no matter how religiously active someone might be, No one can enter into the kingdom without experiencing personal regeneration of the new birth. It doesn't matter how much you serve. It doesn't matter how much you read. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you give. If you've not been born from above, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, how do we know that Nicodemus understood what Jesus was talking about? Well, History tells us that the rabbis had a saying. And here was the saying. Listen very carefully. A proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. All things were thought to be completely new and old connections destroyed. Hear the saying again. A proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. Does that sound familiar? What was it that Paul would say in the book of Galatians? For I have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of myself it is a gift of God, and not by works, so that no man may boast. Isn't that what Paul said? Didn't he say that we are to die to our old selves, and we all things have become new? There was this understanding within the rabbis that if you were to come into Judaism from some pagan religion, you were like a newborn child. All things were considered dead to you and everything became new. So when Nicodemus hears Jesus saying, you must be born again, he understands completely the implications of what Jesus is saying. These words were absolutely staggering to Nicodemus' life. All of his life, he had diligently observed the law and the rituals and the ceremonies that were prescribed by the Pharisees, and he was obedient to these things as much as he knew how to be. He had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees and even became a member of the Sanhedrin, And Jesus is calling him to forsake all of that and to start over to abandon the entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope and to realize that human effort was powerless to save him. Nicodemus is an old man and Jesus is basically saying everything that you've done, 
everything that you've built your life upon, everything that you have hope in is wrong. You need to start over. You need to become like a newborn baby. Nicodemus was floored by what he heard. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 18 when he encounters the children and the disciples who want to keep the children away. And here's what he says in Matthew 18.3. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Children are completely dependent upon their parents. Children typically model their parents. Children need to forsake their own way for a faith in their parents. And this is the analogy that Jesus gives, not only in Matthew, but the analogy that he's giving to Nicodemus right here in John chapter 3. So Nicodemus's world has crashed to the ground with a simple sentence, you must be born again before you can enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus questions this assertion that Jesus is making in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, you've got to remember who Nicodemus is. Wealthy, educated, aristocratic, a member of the ruling group of the Pharisees. He's not a dummy, and he's not suggesting that there's some gynecological miracle that has to take place before anyone can enter into the kingdom of God. He's simply using the analogy that Jesus has introduced and He is saying, in effect, how is it that I can start over? I'm an old man. I've built my life upon this system. This is everything that I've ever worked for, everything that I've ever lived for, everything that I've ever trusted in. How am I going to start over at the very beginning? Jesus is telling Nicodemus that entrance into God's kingdom having His salvation imparted to you, is not a matter of adding something to all of His efforts. It's not topping off His religious devotion with the cherry on top. But it is canceling everything and starting all over again. While he is hearing that, he's very likely also not grasping the full meaning of what Jesus meant. His question conveys his confusion as he openly wondered at the impossibility of this statement that Jesus has made. So on the one hand, he understands what Jesus is saying, but on the other hand, he's seeing the impossible task that lies before him. Why? Because he's deeply entrenched in self-effort into a man-made religious system. If what Jesus was saying is true, then what did it mean for Nicodemus's? works-based system. If spiritual rebirth, like physical rebirth, was impossible from a human standpoint, then where did this leave this self-righteous Jew? You know, it's the same kind of dilemma that Catholics have when they are asked to abandon the old system and to come to Christ by grace through faith. It's the same kind of challenge that a Muslim would have when they are to walk away from their religion and to come to Christ by grace through faith. Nicodemus is faced with what is in his mind an insurmountable impossibility to throw away everything that he has ever counted in and to start at zero. 
I remember when I went to college, I'd been a Christian for about two years. I'd attended a, a small business college in, my, in the town where I lived. And I was about 55 hours into a two-year degree, and I went to college, a four-year university. And I sat in the registrar's office, and I gave to them my transcript. And the lady looked across, looked, looked across her desk at me and said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that school isn't accredited in the same group that we are. We can't accept any of your credits. You have to start over. And when I heard that, I went, okay, I guess that's what I have to do. Because I believed with all my heart that God had led me there and that God would see me through that journey. And this is the dilemma that Nicodemus has, but he doesn't see a way to have God complete in his life what he sees to be absolutely impossible. So now we come to number three. We come to the presentation. So Jesus answers this question, basically, how can I start over again? And he says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this verse has created a lot of confusion and a lot of varying interpretations within the Christian community. There are several options. There, there are three that are really most prevalent in how we understand this need to be born of water and the Spirit. So it's important to remember that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in terms that he would understand. He's speaking to first century Judaism. He's not speaking to 21st century hindsight revelation about water and spirit. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's speaking to Nicodemus' understanding and the culture that Nicodemus has been raised in and what would make sense to him. So some believe that Jesus is talking about two different births, a physical birth and a spiritual birth. The water representing the physical birth and that being included with the amniotic fluid that is a part of physical birth. The challenge with that is that this culture didn't describe physical birth in those terms. So Nicodemus wouldn't understand water and spirit to refer to physical birth and the amniotic fluid that accompanies our physical birth. The phrase water and spirit are considered to be a parallel to the phrase born from above that we see in verse 3. And so many scholars will discount this as two births but is Jesus referring to a single birth, born of water and the Spirit? Now, secondly, some believe that this refers to water baptism, first of all, speaking to the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, if that's what Jesus meant, then that would mean that everybody would have to be baptized by John the Baptist. That would also mean that it was necessary to be baptized in order to have this birth from above to be fulfilled in your life. Now, the second part of that baptism is really the third understanding, and that is that this is a retroactive view backwards to Christian baptism, which had not even taken place yet. There was no Christian baptism at this time. So it didn't exist, and the likelihood that Nicodemus is thinking about 
John the Baptist's baptism or the future Christian baptism or reference to a physical birth associated with the amniotic fluid is really not in Nicodemus's frame of reference and likely not what he would be thinking about. Now, many believe that this is what Jesus is talking about. Water and spirit within the Bible often refer symbolically especially in the Old Testament, which would be Nicodemus's frame of reference, water and spirit refer to spiritual renewal and cleansing. So entrance into the kingdom of God comes only by spiritual renewal. Now let me read for you a passage in Ezekiel where this is made clear to the nation of Israel, which was separated and they'd undergone all kinds of attack from outside enemies, and they were not enjoying life under the rule of God. Ezekiel 36 talks about a future when all things would be changed. Here's what it says. For I will take you from the nations, because they were scattered everywhere, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, they had already inhabited the land of David at some point, but now that's all gone. So I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, which brought about God's discipline in their life. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now what follows this passage in Ezekiel 36 is the explanation in Ezekiel 37 where there's the vision of the valley of dry bones in which the spirit's restoration of the people is described as bringing the dead back to life. So this idea in the Old Testament of the need for spiritual rebirth or regeneration is really not a foreign concept to the nation of Israel, but the Pharisees had been so fixated on their oral traditions and in controlling the lives of others that they had lost sight of what was so abundantly clear in the Old Testament, this forward outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this eventual cleansing that would come when God's Spirit would be put within the hearts of man. So, showing regeneration to be an Old Testament truth with which Nicodemus would have been acquainted is what Jesus is emphasizing to him. He's saying, this isn't a foreign concept to you. You must be born of water and spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. Without this spiritual washing of the soul, without this cleansing accompanied by the Holy Spirit, no one can enter into God's kingdom. Entrance into God's kingdom is singularly God's work. Not man's work. Not man's effort. It's not outweighing the scales of sin and sacrifice, of moralism and obedience. It has nothing to do with that. It is about the gift of God that comes to us by grace. Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so what Jesus is emphasizing here is like generates like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. He's not referencing to physical birth and spiritual birth. He's simply saying that flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh will not give birth to the spiritual. Birth, flesh 
birthed by the flesh in the flesh is not going to get us entrance into the kingdom of God. This is not the flesh of the sinful nature that is so familiar in Paul's writing. It simply speaks to the point that human birth gains us entrance into an earthly family and spiritual birth gains us entrance into God's spiritual family. This is what John has already said in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Spirit and the Spirit alone gives birth to Spirit. And to those who become the children of God and gain entrance into the spiritual kingdom of God, do so by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Not by external religion, not by rituals and ceremonies, only through the work of God. Now, although Jesus' words were based on an Old Testament revelation, they ran completely contradictory to everything that Nicodemus had been taught. For his entire life, he had believed that salvation came through his own external merit. His efforts. And now he finds it exceedingly difficult to change his thinking with what Jesus is confronting him with. Jesus affirms this same statement in verse 7, anticipating what Nicodemus is going to say, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That word must means necessary. It is an absolute requirement. It isn't up for discussion. You must be born again if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. It was absolutely necessary for Nicodemus to get over his shock at being so wrong about how one is accepted into God's spiritual kingdom. He must be born again if he was to enter, and he can never do so based on his own righteous works. This was a seemingly impossible task for Nicodemus to accomplish, and an impossible idea for him to even wrap his, head, his hands around. He, was, he has devoted his entire life to this religious system that now is, he's being told is false and he can't understand what this means. So Jesus offers to him this illustration from nature about the sovereign work of God in salvation. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now remember, we're in an ancient culture There weren't satellites orbiting in space that gave great satellite pictures of what was taking place in the atmosphere so that people could predict the weather patterns. Even with all that technological advancement we have today, we still don't know where the wind comes from, do we? And we don't know really where it's going. We say, yeah, the wind's coming from somewhere over there and it's going somewhere out there, but I don't know where it started, I don't know where it ends. We can't say with precision where it begins and where it ends. We hear the wind, we feel the effects of the wind, we can even see the wind blowing the tree tops or the leaves on the ground, but we can't say exactly where it has come from or where it is going. And Jesus is saying that's exactly how it is with God's sovereign work of salvation. This work of regeneration in the human heart, it can't be controlled, it can't be predicted, yet its effects are seen everywhere. 
Now, our inability to understand this or to explain this, especially the sovereign work of God in salvation, does not make it any less true. Nicodemus hears this and he is absolutely stunned. He's stunned. Verse 9, he says to him, How can these things be? This phrase is better translated, and the literal translation in the Greek is, how is it possible for these things to happen? In Nicodemus' mind, this is an impossibility. This is just contrary to everything he's ever heard, everything he's ever said, everything he's ever studied, everything he's ever done. He doesn't understand how this new birth is to take place. He's never experienced it. He's never heard it. He certainly never taught it. But Jesus asserts this, that even though you are stunned, you shouldn't be because of verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now Jesus could have rattled off verse after verse after verse after verse that would substantiate his view, his position. But we look at this and what Jesus is saying and we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And what He is saying is absolutely true. And He doesn't need to explain it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, ought to know this. The article that you see there before teacher, the. Nicodemus is the teacher, not a teacher. It indicates the kind of stature that Nicodemus had within the Jewish culture and even within the Sanhedrin of which he was a ruler, a ruling member. He above everybody ought to understand what is being said. This idea of regeneration and new birth, being born of water and spirit, being born from above. These verses are sprinkled all throughout Isaiah and Ezekiel and Psalms and even as far back as the Numbers. But Nicodemus and the Jews of Jesus' day were entrenched in a legalistic, ritualized religion and they had lost sight of the need for God's internal work of transformation And Nicodemus doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. He is absolutely shocked. At this point, the conversation switches to a monologue. There's no more conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus gets into his first discourse as he goes on to explain in greater detail this new birth. Now, Nicodemus will return in chapter 7. He will come to Jesus' defense Amongst the Sanhedrin, we'll also see Nicodemus again in chapter 19 when he assists Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Christ. So it appears that this initial conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus had stayed with him to the point that most believe that Nicodemus probably made a profession of faith at some point in his life. His conversion is never specifically mentioned, but it seems based on John 7 and John 19 that Nicodemus probably got it at some point. I want you to think about this. Think about what it would be like for you if someone came to you and said, you know, the understanding you have about salvation being by grace, through faith, and it being a gift of God, that's really not right. It's really your responsibility to earn your salvation. What would that do to you? How would you process that? 
I've known many people in my life who believe in a works-based religious system. And those people have no hope. They have no joy. They dread being a Christian because they can't measure up. And it is an impossibility in their mind to fulfill all that God has required of them. Praise God, that isn't the truth. The truth is that God's gift of salvation is His sovereign work imparted to sinful men and women through no effort or merit of their own as simply an indication of God's love and mercy and grace to those that He has enabled to come to faith in Him and to have a hope of eternity with this God whose love is beyond our ability to understand. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we marvel at your sovereign work of salvation. And like the wind, it is unpredictable. We don't know where it starts and how it ends, but we know that you are in control. We thank you for this great gift of salvation that we know. God, I pray that you would strip us of all of the religious stuff that we have in our life. Of a spiritual checklist that says, I read, or I prayed, or I served, or I gave, and makes us feel more acceptable to you. We are acceptable to you only because of the shed blood of Christ. God, I pray that that truth and that reality would set us free to love you and to serve you that we would give ourselves over to a real transformation of the heart where it would be our highest desire and greatest honor to obey you in every way that we know how. Father, would you continue to capture our heart's affection with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.